Hello, I am Adam Preston and welcome to the second Trafalgar Squared podcast in which I examine just what it is that makes Admiral Nelson stand out as the outstanding British naval commander of his day, with the focus on his abilities as a fighting commander of ships and fleets. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, please do subscribe as it will help me enormously in proving that there is actually an audience out there for this subject matter. At the end of this podcast, I also take a little bit of time to talk about the thing that drew me into this subject in the first place, which is my project Trafalgar. Incidentally, this episode initially aired on the excellent History of England podcast, which I highly recommend. Trafalgar is a fully written, warts and all, period TV drama series about Lord Nelson, Emma Hamilton and a whole raft of other fascinating characters in the years of the Napoleonic Wars, culminating in the Battle of Trafalgar. I know the world is ready for this series, but I need to show that there is an audience for it out there. And there's a website at www.trafalgar.tv where people from all over the world have been saying yes to this project. Hopefully you will too. So I'm looking today at what makes Nelson special, and I'm concentrating on Nelson, the fighting commander in the age of sail in the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars. Now, any officer of the British Navy during this period had the best trained and on the whole, the most experienced crews in the world. There was no huge disparity in the technology, so good crews gave you the edge. Nelson took the best crews in the world and he raised them to another whole level of excellence. But he also understood and made use of that edge in his tactics. And later, he would also make use of his growing fame and the effect that that had on his men, which took things up another whole notch in terms of excellence and commitment. Now, Nelson was a very experienced and skilled mariner. He'd had a huge amount of experience. Early in his career, he'd been effectively a Thames pilot um, in the Navy. He was made captain at 21. And by the time he's engaged in the battles I'm going to talk about, He's in possession of a set of skills and a depth of knowledge that is largely lost to us now and, to an extent, incomprehensible to us. Quick point about raking gunfire. This was when your enemy managed to unleash all the guns on one side of their ship so that cannonballs passed the whole length of your ship. It was absolutely devastating and very much the thing to avoid. These ships were very crowded places. So I want to briefly get inside Nelson's head before the great series of battles starts to unfold. In March 1795, Nelson had commanded the Agamemnon at the Sea Battle of Genoa, a very minor British victory. He had taken a much larger ship, the Sar Ira, slaloming back and forth, releasing raking gunfire without letting the other ship get a single shot from either side to return fire. But the commander, Admiral Hottam, noticed that the bulk of the French fleet were dropping back to offer support, and he hoisted the signal, the whole fleet will now retire. This was anathema to Nelson. Sure I am, he wrote afterwards, had I commanded our fleet on the 14th, that either the whole French fleet would have graced my triumph, or I should have been in a confounded scrape. Despite his crucial role in delivering this minor victory, Nelson was not even mentioned in dispatches. He believed that had he been in command, he would have captured or destroyed the entire French fleet. This would have meant retaining control of the Mediterranean. It would have changed history. Shortly afterwards, he wrote a letter. And I love this letter because although it's filled with frustration and indignation, it's also quite funny. And by the way, he's only talking about what he's been up to recently. 110 days I've been actually engaged at sea and on shore against the enemy. Three actions against ships, two against Bastia in my ship, 
four boat actions and two villages taken, and 12 sail of vessels burned. I don't know anyone who has done more. He then goes on, for services in which I have been slightly wounded, others have been praised, who at the time were actually in bed, far from the scene of action. Nelson is 37 years old. He's in a fairly dangerous state of mind. He not only believes that he isn't getting the credit he deserves, he believes that a ship under his command is capable of taking on anything, and he has the vision to deliver decisive victories of the kind that alter the course of a war. Above all, he knows his own worth and believes it is not being recognised by the organisation he works for. So now, the Battle of Cape St Vincent, 14th of February 1797. Nelson is ready to take a massive calculated gamble. It's a battle between the Brits and Napoleon's allies, the Spanish off the coast of Portugal. The Spanish Grand Fleet, 24 ships of the line, six of them 112 guns and the four-deck Santissima Trinidad, largest fighting ship in the world. An eyewitness described this fleet as looking like beachy head in a fog. Now, the Brits had a significantly smaller fleet of 15 sail of the line, and both fleets were accompanied by frigates, etc. In line of battle formation, the British fleet broke the Spanish line, and the commander, Admiral Jarvis, ordered the fleet to attack in succession, intending to engage the bulk of the fleet. This manoeuvre initially meant for much of the fleet sailing away from the enemy. When you look at a diagram showing the position of the ships at this point, you can see third from the rear, the 74-gun ship captain commanded by Nelson. You've essentially got a polite queue of British ships heading south, intending to then tack and head north by northwest to attack the enemy. Nelson is near the back of the queue. Now, observing that the bulk of the fleet was apparently trying to escape, Nelson ordered his captain to wear ship. He effectively did a U-turn, directly disobeyed Jarvis's orders and flung himself at the enemy. He quickly found himself on his own and under fire from seven ships, several of them carrying over a hundred guns, and including the awesome Santissima Trinidad. Initially, none of the other British ships supported this action, but luckily Jarvis saw the brilliance of what Nelson had done and ordered the other ships in the rear division to come on to the port tack, causing them all to turn towards the battle. Nelson had really sort of taken over command through action. His actions would have been suicide if the Spanish ships were as well manned as the British, but he knew that they were not. Of course, he did put his crew in enormous danger. He was risking his own life. He was risking his ship, his career, and his ship was soon shot to ribbons. The wheel gone, her foretop mask on over the side. He wasn't phased by this, and he just rammed the Spanish San Nicolas. And what followed is a rare example of real history resembling swashbuckling fantasy. Nelson, who at this stage was already blind in one eye, with a group of his old Agamemnon hands and soldiers of the 69th Regiment and three midshipmen, clambered from the four chains of the captain into the enemy's quarter gallery, where a marine used his musket to smash an upper window. If you imagine those magnificent, elaborate stern galleries that you see in paintings, they've clambered up onto one of those and smashed their way through the windows. So now they're in a cabin, but the doors are locked and Spanish officers are firing down on them through the skylights. They force the doors, burst out onto the quarterdeck, and this was a ship where the lower gun decks were still firing. Nelson took this ship and received the swords of the officers. 
At this point, seven of the boarding party that were standing with Nelson are killed by pistol fire from the stern gallery of another massive Spanish ship, the San Joseph, which in the chaos has become entangled with the San Nicolas. Nelson immediately decides that he's going to take this massive ship as well. He orders his marines to return fire, stations sentinels at the hatchways to keep the enemy crew below decks, and calls across to his ship for more men, shouting, Westminster Abbey, or glorious victory! He clambers into the main chains and leads a second boarding party, which now successfully takes ship number two. Again, he receives the swords of the officers, but now he's got too many swords to hold, and he has to hand them to one of his bargemen. Afterwards, an eyewitness described Nelson as having most of his hat shot away, shirt and coat in tatters, face streaked in gunpowder, and wounded from a shell splinter. His gamble had paid off to an extent. Had his action failed, he would have been court-martialed, absolutely no question. As it was, the entire fleet recognised the brilliance of what he had done. HMS Victory passed the interlocking group of Captain San Nicolas and San Joseph, her men lining her decks, and they saluted him with three cheers, followed by every ship in the fleet. And believe me, that didn't happen every day. But Nelson was still frustrated. He wrote, We ought to have had the Santissima Trinidad and the Soberano. They belonged to us by conquest and only wanted some good fellow to get alongside them, and they were ours. What's more, Admiral Jarvis, who would become Lord St. Vincent because of this battle, did not even mention Nelson in his all-important first dispatch, an indication of just how incredibly hard it was to get noticed in the British Navy. But he had been noticed by the ordinary seamen. From this point on, they regarded Nelson as someone who it was an honour to serve under. In fact, a clear indication of this is seen soon after. He'd shifted his flag to the Theseus, whose crew had just recently been described, while under a different command, as the most tiresome, noisy, mutinous people in the world. This same crew dropped a note on Nelson's quarterdeck, reading, Success attend Admiral Nelson. We are happy and comfortable and will shed every drop of blood in our veins. The moment Nelson left the line of battle at Cape St Vincent is like the moment the boy at rugby school picked up the ball and ran with it, or when Dylan went electric at Newport Festival. It was revolutionary. It was incredibly bold, and at the time it made him a household name. It's largely forgotten now, because it has been eclipsed by the victories that followed. So now I'm going to talk briefly about one aspect of the Battle of the Nile, 1st of August 1798. If Cape St Vincent is about boldness, I think the Nile is about leadership. Now, Nelson had been searching for the French fleet for many months. He knew that Napoleon had an army on board and was planning to invade something. He just didn't know what. He finally caught up with them at Abukir Bay in Egypt, too late for Egypt, which had been successfully invaded. The Nile is the battle where Nelson gets to show what he can do when he's in command of a fleet. During the months leading up to this, Nelson had insisted on endless gun practice on board, including training his gun crews for night engagements. He had also come to a somewhat revolutionary conclusion. He realised that centralising command could be a weakness in fleet engagements. To change this, he endlessly had his captains join him for conferences on board Theseus, so that every possible eventuality could be discussed. His ideal was that there should be no necessity for signals in battle. His captains would know what to do. 
Nelson was always saying things like, I am lucky to have the best men in the world under my command. He placed enormous confidence in them. When they encountered the French fleet, anchored in a line in Abukir Bay early evening on the 1st of August, Nelson ordered them into line of battle, and that was it as far as signals were concerned. What is more, each ship in the British line took up its battle station inshore of the enemy, despite the fact that this was a very dicey situation. This was a coast that was completely unknown to them. There were shallows everywhere and not a single local pilot on board any ship. This was an area with waters deepening so slowly that anchorage for ships of the line could not be found within three miles of the coast. Yet without hesitation, they just sailed right into battle inshore of the enemy. Why were they able to do this? Well, every captain had noticed what Nelson had immediately noticed, which was that the French 74-gun ships were at a single anchor. This meant that they had room to swing, and if they had room to swing, there was room between them and the shore for a British 74 to anchor. That's not to say that they weren't careful. They took soundings continuously as they approached, and in fact one ship did ground, the Ecladen. But afterwards, Contra-Admiral Blanquet du Chailer, prisoner of war, remarked that Nelson, without doubt, had experienced pilots on board. The French had not even considered the possibility that an enemy fleet would dare to slip between them and the shore. In many cases, their gun ports were loose, piled up with baggage and mess furniture. The Battle of the Nile was fought in the dark, and of the French 13 ships of the line, nine were taken or burned. Of four frigates, one was burned and one sunk. The Nile was a massive naval victory for Britain, the biggest since the Armada, and it showed the world for the first time that no, Napoleon was not invincible. So now we come to Nelson's bloodiest battle. What Nelson does at the Battle of Copenhagen on the 2nd of April 1801 is inspiring. In fact, I take inspiration from it all the time. It's all about confidence and epic optimism. Now, I think everyone has an understanding of why we were fighting Napoleon, but a quick explanation of why we were fighting the Danes is probably going to be helpful. Prussia, Sweden, Denmark and Russia had formed the Treaty of Armed Neutrality, designed to choke off Britain's trade with those countries. On its inception, Paul I of Russia had ordered the seizure of all British merchants in his ports and cities. It stopped the Brits getting their hands on the Baltic timber they needed for masts, spars and decking, without which they were sunk. In Nelson's words, the purpose of the Baltic campaign was to crush a most formidable and unprovoked coalition against Great Britain. Nelson suffered the torture and indignity of being placed second in command of the fleet under Sir Hyde Parker, an elderly, extremely wealthy man who had just married an 18-year-old girl known by the nickname of Batter Pudding in the fleet. Why was Nelson, now a national hero, placed second in command? Well, it's probably best summed up with two words, Emma Hamilton. His affair with her was a huge scandal the word was that he had lost his judgment. Nelson wanted to attack the Russian fleet, but initially Parker excluded him from all discussions. He was actually observed striking through every recommendation made by Nelson with his pen. Because Parker was in command, the expedition took 18 days before coming in sight of Copenhagen. 
during which time the Danes had significantly strengthened their defences, removed all marker boys from the very hazardous harbour approach, and a much more bloody encounter became inevitable. Once they got to Denmark, Parker's resolve to keep Nelson in his place evaporated. Nelson's scheme for an attack on Copenhagen was adopted. Nelson personally got out in the boats with masters and pilots, sounding and reboying the channel. Many regarded the prospect of battle as terrifying. The very experienced Captain Fremantle reckoned they were a week too late. A group of experienced Baltic pilots point-blank refused to guide the ships into their battle stations. As Nelson put it, the honour of our country entrusted to pilots who have no other thought than to keep the ship clear of danger and their own silly heads clear of shot. Nelson was raging with optimism. His view of the defences was, it looks formidable to those who are children at war. When someone mentioned the possibility, possibility of the Swedish navy turning up to support Denmark, he remarked, the more numerous, the better. The two sides were roughly equally matched in terms of firepower. The Danes had 18 dismasted warships known as hulks in a line a mile long. The Brits had 18 ships of the line in total, but with only 12 deployed, the rest were held back with Parker as a reserve. The Danes also had the Trekrona Seafort and could resupply and reinforce from the shore, and they were also defending their home capital. Nelson's plan involved passing with a northerly wind up the outer channel, then to wait for a southerly wind to take him down the inner channel to get his ships into position in succession, using ships already in place to protect those moving up into position. He would then punch a hole in the Danish line so that his bomb ships could bombard the citadel. This did not happen. First the Agamemnon, then the Bologna, then the Russell all went aground. In other words, it started to go very wrong. His bomb ships never got into position to bombard the citadel. He was reduced from 12 ships to 9 ships of the line. A disastrous development considering the odds. A lesser leader might well have panicked. A thousand guns were now blasting away, firing at each other at between 200 and 500 yards, each broadside unleashing more than three tons of metal at the other. This was bloody toe-to-toe -to -toe fighting by well-matched opponents, and it went on for hours. Nelson, on his ship, the Elephant, was under fire from both shore batteries and the Danish flagship, the Dannebrog. He called it warm work and remarked, I would not be anywhere else for thousands. Some four miles away, Parker, with the reserve squadron, could only see smoke. He flew signal number 39 to leave off action. When told the signal to withdraw was flying from the commander's flagship, Nelson shouted back, I told you to look out on the Danish Commodore and let me know when he surrendered. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Nelson is not looking to withdraw. He's not looking to retreat or surrender, he's looking for victory. The great explorer Ernest Shackleton said, the quality I look for most is optimism, especially optimism in the face of reverses and apparent defeat. Optimism is true moral courage. At Copenhagen, Nelson displayed this on an epic scale. Nelson acknowledged receipt of Sir Hyde's signal, but he kept his signal number 16 flying, which is the signal for close action. Then he's reputed to have said, 
I have a right to be blind sometimes. I really do not see the signal. This, of course, has gifted us the saying to turn a blind eye to something. So what would have happened if Nelson had obeyed his commander here? Well, we can see a glimpse of it when Captain Rue in the 38-gun frigate Amazon saw the signal. He was in charge of the frigates attacking the Trecrona fort. When he saw Sir Hyde's signal, he fought on bravely for half an hour, but feeling too junior to ignore a direct order, he ordered his small squadron to withdraw, and as they turned, they were exposed to raking fire. Rue himself was cut in half by a cannonball. Had Nelson lost his nerve and repeated Sir Hyde's signal, it is quite likely the Battle of Copenhagen would have been one of the greatest military disasters in British history. Later, when Sir Hyde's conduct became known to the Admiralty, he was removed from his command and replaced by Nelson. After three hours of this punishing warfare, Nelson was heard saying, then they must take four hours to do it. The Danish flagship Danabrog was burning fiercely and slipped her moorings. Members of her crew were throwing themselves in the sea to escape death, but when a British boarding party was sent to take possession of her, they were fired upon. Nelson now decided to send on shore a flag of truce, with a letter demanding a cessation of hostilities. Having written the letter, Nelson sent a sailor to the cockpit to fetch a candle to make a seal. The sailor did not return because his head was blown off by a cannonball. It was pointed out to Nelson that maybe they could use instant wafer seals instead. Nelson insisted they must use sealing wax. Later he explained, The wafer would have been still wet when the letter was presented to the Crown Prince. He would have inferred that the letter was sent in a hurry, and that we had some very pressing reasons for being in a hurry. The wax told no tales. He wanted to make the point that on board his flagship there was a fully functioning office where calm and efficiency prevailed, and nobody was really bothered by Danish gunfire. By this point, six ships, including his own, were aground, a thousand killed or wounded. In the Bologna, two guns had exploded, causing devastation. The Danes asked for clarification, and his second message is brilliantly clever. Lord Nelson, with humble duty to His Royal Highness, the Prince of Denmark, will consider this the greatest victory he has ever gained, if it may be the cause of a happy reconciliation and union between his own most gracious sovereign and His Majesty the King of Denmark. This succeeded in ending hostilities and ensured that there was no question. He'd got the word victory down in writing and it wasn't disputed. It was absolutely clear that victory was Nelson's. What a display of unassailable optimism and confidence in the face of a horrendous, terrifying situation. I think of Nelson's conduct at the Battle of Copenhagen whenever I'm in a situation and things start to go wrong. So now let's just touch very briefly on the Battle of Trafalgar, fought on the 21st of October 1805 against the combined Franco-Spanish fleet. This was the battle where I think Nelson's courage was magnificently on display. His tactics were specifically designed to throw the combined Franco-Spanish fleet into a state of terrified befuddlement. Instead of forming a single line of battle and sliding up against them to avoid raking fire, Nelson formed up in two lines and went straight at them, meaning his entire fleet was exposed to raking fire on the approach. It was like a boxer coming out of his corner with his arms down by his side, inviting his opponent to have a free whack at his head. In a way, he was doing 
what he did at Cape St. Vincent, but with an entire fleet. As at the Nile, he trusted his captains to make their own decisions once the battle had started, and as at Copenhagen, he was completely confident of victory. And now he had under him a body of men who practically worshipped him. He was a national hero, the like of which Britain had never seen before. The approach was brutal. Nelson insisted on leading the weather line, and as always, he was on his quarterdeck, highly visible with his colourful array of awards on his admiral's coat, ridiculously exposed to French sharpshooters, trained exactly for the purpose of killing him. He refused an offer to put on a different coat, and only covered his awards after he'd been shot to keep it from his men that he'd fallen. He also refused an offer from Captain Blackwood to shift his flag to the Euryalus, from where he would have been able to view the battle and he would have lived to enjoy the fruits of victory. But that wasn't Nelson's style. It didn't matter what your role was on board the British fleet. You knew that Nelson was in more danger than yourself. During that long, slow approach at about a mile and a half an hour, on a sunny day, with a light breeze, the leading ships were exposed to punishing fire without being able to return a single shot. Nelson's secretary, Scott, was cut in half by a cannonball, spraying Nelson with blood. Then his clerk was killed. Then a double-headed shot killed a group of eight marines standing nearby, and Nelson ordered the rest to spread out more. Once the battle started properly, Nelson sauntered back and forth on the quarterdeck like a man taking an evening stroll. The sheer nerve required for this kind of thing is difficult to comprehend. The real miracle is that, with his spine snapped by a musket ball, he lived long enough to be told of his victory. So for me, boldness, leadership, confidence, optimism and courage, these are some of the things that make Nelson special. So now I'm just going to talk a tiny bit about my project Trafalgar. I was initially commissioned to write Trafalgar by Working Title Television, and I had the privilege of being able to spend three years researching and writing. I knew quite a lot about Nelson, but once I got into it, I quickly realised that this was one of the great true stories in all of history. It's got unbelievable highs and excruciating lows. It's all incredibly colourful, and it includes scenes of spectacular violence. I became fascinated, of course, by Emma Hamilton, an exuberant, beautiful bohemian spirit who travelled further through barriers of class than anybody else of that era. Nelson's white-hot love affair with Emma never cooled, and it cost him so much, dragging him down in the estimation of the very people he so wanted to impress the perfect, sexy complication for a screenplay. Emma, of course, married Sir William Hamilton, himself a wonderful, fascinating character, with whom Nelson lived with his wife in a bizarre menage a trois. There's a whole host of other characters, dramas and struggles that went on around Nelson, and I pretty much fell down the rabbit hole of becoming a Georgian Navy enthusiast. A Georgian Navy nut, really, but I had a very good excuse, which is that I had to get things right. So, what does a Nelson film for today look like? Well, first of all, we do not need an old-fashioned, worshipful trumpeting of the glories of the immortal Nelson. We don't need it because there's a much better story to tell. What I've written is an exploration of a group of complex, fascinating characters in turbulent and testing times. It's a portrait of an era and of a nation engaged in an existential struggle. 
It is historical drama told with nuance, a story of both darkness and light. This is a story that will be told over and over forever. And I think this generation, this time, deserves an intelligent, grown-up telling of it. My vision for this is not the usual cliché. I frame the whole thing by animating the brilliant satirical cartoons of James Gilray, putting the viewer into the mindset of the people of Georgian England. The films I am inspired by are ones where story is not sacrificed to slavish historical accuracy, but where there is a real sense of intelligence and craftsmanship about the way the past is presented. The director Peter Weir is an absolute master of this, and the film Master and Commander, in fact, would be a really good model for the kind of vision I have for this project. Of course, a Nelson film for today is not a film at all, but a TV series for the age of Netflix and Amazon. And what I have now is five hours of finished scripts, which have been very highly praised by some of the leading lights in British broadcasting. And you can see some of the comments they've made at www.trafalgar.tv. You may be wondering how we can possibly recreate naval fleet engagements. But in fact, digital technology is now more than capable of bringing this to life in a way that has never been seen before and will astonish the viewer. Matthew Plummer, a senior producer at DNEG, one of the world's largest and most advanced digital effects companies, has been involved in Trafalgar from its very inception. So I'm now proving that there is an audience for Trafalgar by directing people to www.trafalgar.tv where you can enter your email address and say, yes, this sounds interesting to me. I've talked about some of Nelson's fighting virtues, but if there's one reason, if I had to boil it down, why I think this series should be made, it is because ultimately it is about that virtue for which he is most celebrated, courage. And we all need courage in our lives. We may not have to stand on a quarterdeck in the full uniform of a vice admiral at the head of a fleet going into battle, but it's one hell of a metaphor, isn't it, for standing up, stepping forward and being brave in your life, even in the face of devastating setbacks. This story has transformed me for the better, and I think the world is ready for it. So please go to www.trafalgar.tv and add your yes. Yes, I'd like to see this. Yes, I'm interested. Yes, keep me posted on what happens. So thank you so much for listening to Trafalgar Squared. Please remember to subscribe and also do go to trafalgar.tv to support the TV series. If you want to support this podcast and help to get it up onto a sustainable footing, you can support it on Patreon by just looking up Adam Preston on patreon.com. So until next time on Trafalgar Squared, goodbye. Goodbye.